Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome to Dwell, a Cersei Institute podcast for homeschool moms by homeschool moms. I'm Emily Hill, and joining me are Karen Kern and Renee Mathis. Hey, friends. Hey, ladies. How are you doing? All right. So a month or so ago, we posed the question on Facebook, what is your favorite book on education? And so many of you had some wonderful recommendations of books that have been formational in your journey and in ours as well. Some shared loves of these books like Teaching from Rest and When Children Love to Learn, Norms and Nobility is a favorite. And I thought about this question for a couple of minutes and I threw in my own book title, Lewis's Till We Have Faces, A Myth Retold. So technically this is not a book on education, but it is in fact a mythical story of one woman's pilgrimage of the soul. And when you think about it, that really is the goal and purpose of an education. And a few of you expressed an interest in reading this book together. So here we are. And I do hope you've had a lovely time wrestling through, it's not an easy book. So wrestling through this book, um, because we only have a short time to spend together on this very deep and complex book, we're going to spend our conversation time focusing on education as the journey of the soul through the eyes of Oriole, our protagonist. And I'll admit, the first time I read this book, I was in my early 20s. And when I finished the last page, I remember thinking, I do not have a single clue what this book is about. And I don't know if the second reading shed very much more light in my mind, but third, fourth, a few years later, a few kids later, a few hard life knocks later, I think I began to catch this, the smallest glimpse of what Lewis was talking about in his myth. And I think it is helpful um, to have a basic knowledge of the classic myth of Cupid and Psyche that is the framework for this retelling. But even if you don't and are not familiar with this 
myth, um, I think you will begin to catch Lewis's just social commentary and criticism of the modern age of reason versus spirituality. Um, so today we're just going to spend our time with just a look into the book and some of its themes, and then we'll meet again to dive deeper into this books. So I would love to hear from you ladies. First off, what was your first impression of this book? Um, I'll jump in. I had not read it in the earlier years of my life, partly because I have never, I'm afraid to admit, I've never really loved fantasy. And um, I could enjoy the Chronicles of Narnia um, because they were still pretty much set in our world and um, it made sense. But other forms of fantasy, they I don't love them. But a few years ago, um, in my in our kindred book club that we host here in Concord, we read it, and um, uh, I didn't love it. I liked it. I had a lot of questions. Um, it was still very much a mystery. Um, I could I could see some of the themes. I could appreciate the themes, um, but I would say I didn't. I didn't love it. And so here we were recently reading it again. And I think that it's true that the more you read it, the more you think about it, uh, the more you maybe listen to other people talk about it, the more you're in community over it, then the themes kind of uh, become clearer. And I could say that the ideas in this book, I really do love because um, I can see the journey of the soul. Um you know, it's not about the plot. It's it's about the journey of a soul. And so I can love it for that reason. Karen, I'm, I'm like you. I have not read it. I don't think I had read it when I was younger. So I'm, I'm going to count this as my first time. And I have to say that when I was through, a couple of things came to mind. Number one, I wish I'd had a hard copy and not my Kindle. Um, I really wish I could have gone after it with my highlighters. And uh, I'm a huge mm -hmm. fan of the Cersei method of highlighting your books. And uh, if you don't know what that is, we can have another podcast on that sometime. But um, if I could get my hands on a hard copy, I would highlight every time I came across the word faces, because obviously that is a recurring theme throughout the book, a motif, if you will. And um, I, the other thing that came to mind was like, well, this is not Narnia. <laughs> this, is, this is a different C.S. Lewis. And if you've not read, um, you know, maybe you're, you're just familiar with Narnia or maybe you're just familiar with his nonfiction, like Mere Christianity or The Abolition of Man. And I remember reading it thinking, wow, C.S. Lewis is, you know, writing a story. It's like a novel. And I, it is a myth. It is a myth retold. It's not really a novel in the genre sense of the word. But I loved how he captured the main character's personality. You know, I liked Oriol. She has problems. She suffers a lot. She, she's trying to figure out her place in the world, and she has been rejected by those who are closest to her, who should have been showing her and teaching her what it means to love and grow and, and mature as a young woman. And, and she's denied all of that. And um, she's trying to figure out what all this means. And, and there is a lot of anger and suffering in the midst of all of that. Um, and I, you know, I think, my goodness, we've all lived through 2020. I think we can relate to how do we, how do we live and survive in a world where is God near? Is he far apart? What do we do with all this suffering? What do we do when there's things all around us that we don't understand? 
and um, Lewis captures all of that beautifully. Yeah, and I'll, I'll jump on to that, what you said about you would highlight the word faces and obviously the title itself, Till We Have Faces, there is a sense of, even with that word till or until, until that happens. So, you know, what precedes that? What kind of state are you going to be in until you have this face? Um, and that's the wrestling of this. And you, and you mentioned a couple other, if those keywords there of um, love, and we're going to, we're going to jump into that conversation. Like this is uh, a story of learning to love and the struggle that is. And as moms and wives, that story and humans, women, that story is familiar to us, right? Learning to love is hard. whether it is a child or a sister or a teacher. Um, And then you also mentioned suffering. And um, I see suffering is so much this idea of participating in the journey. It's, I mean, it hurts, right? And this is a story of love, of longing, of suffering, but it's set in the form of a myth. So like, Kind of let's talk about that for a moment. You mentioned, Karen, how this this is not Narnia, right? right. Um, and even when you jump into the characters, very fascinating. Why is this myth told from the perspective of a bitter old woman? That's so unusual. I mean, you don't see that in Lewis's stories, right? That's kind of an unusual uh, perspective. Usually, uh, Lewis's stories are... Um, from a youthful perspective. Um, and even, um, even the original myth is not from the perspective of a bitter old woman, right? Um, so Karen, you had kind of mentioned this um, earlier of like a basic understanding of the story. Like, do you, like, can you do this? I'm gonna put you on the spot. Can you sum up the story basically of Cupid and Psyche um, like three minutes or less. I will do my best. I have in my um, copy of Till We Have Faces a note at the end where C.S. Lewis retells the story. And I'll just look at the, I won't read it. I'll just try to hit the highlights. And if I miss anything, jump in. So the story of Cupid and Psyche is that a king and queen had three daughters. The youngest is named Psyche. And she was so, so beautiful that two major things happened. One is that the goddess Venus was jealous of her. The other is that it meant that she had no suitors because she was so beautiful that men were too intimidated to ask for her hand. So her father consulted the Oracle of Apollo about her marriage, and he was told, you will not have a son-in-law. You are going to have to expose Psyche on a mountain to be the prey of a dragon. And so he did this. But meanwhile, Venus, jealous of Psyche, had already devised a punishment for her. And she ordered her son Cupid to um, afflict the girl with an arrow, I suppose, so that if um, she would fall in love with the most base of men, the first man who um, came to her, she would fall in love with him. So he set off to do that. But of course, on seeing her, he fell in love with her himself. 
And so that when, at the same time, her father left her on the mountain to be sacrificed, um, he carried her off with a west wind to a secret place, a secret palace. And there he would visit her by night. And um, um, all the time, he forbade her to see his face. And so she was lonely for her sisters. So she begged that she might be able to see a visit for them. And um, he he consented, and the sisters came to um, see her at the palace, and they were devoured by envy because not only was she the most beautiful, but she was so happy in her palace with her wonderful husband. So they plotted to destroy her happiness, and they said to her, you need to find out what this husband looks like. Who is he? And so um, he might really be a serpent. So you need to take into your bedroom tonight a lamp and a knife. And so when he falls asleep, you light the lamp and look at his face. And so she gullibly uh, promised to do that. And so that night she uncovered the lamp and she saw him sleeping and a drop of hot oil fell from her lamp onto his shoulder, which woke him up. And then he was very angry and he uh, rebuked her and he vanished and he uh, left her. Uh, the two sisters um, uh, did not long enjoy their punishment that they gave Psyche because Cupid took measures that led to their deaths. And meanwhile, Psyche wandered away and she tried to drown herself, but the god Pan um, uh, frustrated that attempt and warned her never to repeat that desire to kill herself. And so after... After a time in exile, she fell into the hands of the bitter enemy, Venus, who made her do three impossible tasks. She had to sort seeds into heaps, which she did by the help of ants. She had to get golden wool from man-killing sheep, um, which she managed to do because um, she was told that there was actually some wool on the bushes. And then she had to fetch a cup full of water from the river Styx, which could only be done by climbing um, unpenetrable mountains, but an eagle met her and took the cup from her hand and returned with water. And so finally, Venus sent her down into the underworld to get a box of beauty from Persephone, the queen of the dead. And when she was bringing that up to Venus, um, she had been told she must not open the box. But of course, she opened the box and she looked into it and she loses consciousness but then cupid comes to her again and this time he forgives her and intercedes with jupiter who agreed to permit his marriage and venus was also recon reconciled to um psyche and so cupid and psyche were married and uh, venus was happy and they all lived happily ever after is that under yeah. three minutes? There you go. I think it was four, but it's Five. a long story. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> so here, so there's, there's your basic plot and fascinating that Lewis does actually stick to it. Um, and in the, in the preface of till we have faces, I will have to tell you, I, this is like my pride and joy and I have a first edition of Till We Have Faces that was given to me as a gift. So it is the only wow. nice first edition of any book that I own. So it, it makes me really happy that I own this book. Um, and in the beginning 
of this edition, uh, the author says, this reinterpretation of an old story has lived in the author's mind, thickening and hardening with the years ever since he was an undergraduate. That way, he could be said to have worked at it most of his life. Recently, what seemed to be the right form presented itself and themes suddenly interlocked. The straight tale of barbarism, the mind of an ugly woman, dark idolatry and pale enlightenment at war with each other and with vision, and the havoc which a vocation or even a faith works on human life. So I feel like we actually can spend the rest of the time talking about that right there in light of the book. Um, so tell me, like upon reading this story, tell me, I'll use Lewis's words there and tell me your thoughts on this. When he specifically says he's reinterpreting a myth and he does reinterpret it. And so a couple things, like why did he choose the form of a myth to get his point across about love and his, I mean, social commentary on modernity and spirituality. But why do you think he used the form of a myth? Like you said, that's not Narnia. Right. Uh, um, I don't really have a great answer except to say that in a myth, myths are how people interact with the gods. And so it would be very hard to have an old woman telling her life, telling about how she interacted with the God, you know, I mean, there are many novels about that, I suppose, or memoirs about that, but I, I guess maybe I think it was kind of a story. Karen, I would agree. I, I like the, the statement that myths are concerned or, or, you know, modern novels or the modern novel is not concerned with ultimate reality, but a myth is. And so, yeah, a myth is a great vehicle for exploring that relationship of, of man with gods, right? Because in our you know understanding of heroic myths, we're the Iliad and the Odyssey, and 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 we have these heroes, and they're heroic because they're called to account by the gods. They must do what the gods are calling them to do. Um, you get modern man who wants to get rid of the gods, but when you do that, you get rid of heroes as well, and then you just have depressing literature. <laughs> so I love that Lewis chose that form of a myth to explore these timeless questions because um, he is, he, he's writing. And one of the, the sources I was reading about this novel says that when Lewis began writing it as a younger man, he was not a Christian. He was an atheist. And in the beginning, um, he was, um, he wanted the hero to be in the right and the gods in the wrong. And by the time he finished the story later on in his life, um, he had changed that around and, and we can talk later about where the problem really lies, who is in the right, who is in the wrong. Well, and as Karen, you said, the mythical form of narrative explains um, a natural or supernatural natural phenomena, which is exactly what happens here. And we're kind of left to figure out as Oriole wrestled with, was this, was this spiritual? Was this science? what happened here in the story. And um, 
as Thomas Howard, a well-known Catholic writer and theologian stated, uh, the myth is the story that we all wish was true. And there's just this, there's so much longing in myth of the explanation of this is how humans interact with the gods. And in this book, it's even the first line of this and to what you said, Renee, um, Lewis's own wrestling uh, with the gods, right? The first line of this is one of my favorite of all literature. It says, I am old now and have not much to fear from the anger of the gods. And then the second paragraph, being for all these reasons free from fear, I would write in this book what no one who has happiness would dare to write. I will accuse the gods, especially the God who lives on the gray mountain. And that's our journey, right? There's something in us that's like, wait, who is God? And why is it like this? So to choose the mythical form, I think that was so intentional of Lewis. But this is what's funny to me. Like, why did, why is he telling it from the perspective of a bitter old woman? I mean, the original story is not, yeah, I'm asking you, like the original story is not from that perspective, right? Okay. <laughs> he's telling, right. He's telling the story from Psyche's sister. He's not telling the story from Psyche's point of view, but rather um, the sister who was ugly, not the sister who was beautiful. To me, <laughs> that just makes for a better story to yes. jump in at the end of somebody's life who was suffering, who was unhappy, who was um, angry and who has now written it down. And, and the very fact that she's writing, it means she survived. Um, mm -hmm. And that she has had a change of heart because would she, it assumes maybe that you would think she's had a change of heart, I suppose. Well, at this point, at the very beginning, She's still angry. She's still angry. <laughs> She's like, and as you read the book, you're like, okay, well, I totally get why you're kind of angry. I mean, you've not had the easiest life here. Um, but that's where you begin to see this, this, as we said, the journey of the soul, which coincidentally, the word psyche is the word for soul. Okay. So this is like, literally, this was meant to be a telling of the story of the soul and to take that from an outside perspective, right? She's watching the story of the soul and I won't give, I, if you haven't finished it, I, I won't give away the end yet, yet. Of, but really yeah, it's not, to that. It, it, when I finished it, I was like, it's not really Psyche's story. It's Oriol's story and it's the journey of her soul, um, yep. which it, that's where Lewis is so brilliant because he takes this myth, which is a once upon a time, almost like a fairy tale. And instead of, you know, the lovely happy ending with the harps playing and the flowers blooming, he tells it from the story of this outsider looking in on it. But then he's like, but wait a minute, it's really her story. You know, she's going to watch Psyche's story unfold, but it's really going to be her story. And she's the one who's telling it. And like you said, at least we know from the beginning that she survived. <laughs> we know that, that she made it to the end. But we don't know what happened in the middle, so we've got to keep reading. 
And I will say, Emily, if I had a first edition lovely copy of this book, I would not highlight it. <laughs> so I know it is not highlighted. Destroy your book. <laughs> I do have a paperback, you know, like a, a seven ninety nine paperback that definitely has my notes in it. Um, yeah, so it is. One of the things. So- can I throw something out here too? Yeah, um, something that you know, those of us who are used to reading Narnia, it's it's generally fairly easy in Narnia to pick out the Christian allegorical elements. Oh, you know, this is like when this happened in the Bible, or this is like God's character, or this, and, and it's a little harder in this book. Um, it's not going to just jump right out. Lewis doesn't offer them to you on a platter or gift wrap. Um, and so I will say it did freak me out a little bit as I was first reading it, um, the, the very pagan elements, the fact that in this country of Gloam, they worship a god called Ungit, who's a gigantic black statue. Um, and, you know, as a Christian, you're like, well, that's a little weird and pagan and we don't do that. And But there are some elements of that that are very familiar to us as believers. So the idea that the temple is where we go for consolation, the idea that a blood sacrifice is required for the people, um, that worship is required, that sometimes one needs to one person needs to die for the people. Obviously, as Christians, that resonates with us. Um, the fact that God is in control of nature um, versus you know freedom versus obedience. So. Um, you know, it's not a perfect one-for-one representation of Christianity, but Lewis has pictured this this God that, you know, that they worship that is very much a part of Oriwell's life. And, and so she's going to have to figure out what to do about that. Well, and as you just said, there's so many verses in here. There's, um, it is a book of contrasts for sure. Um, and for those of us in the classical world, we know that we're doing that all the time. Like we're contrasting. How is this like this? How is this type like this? Um, and it doesn't have just those same one-to-one allegorical, like pick up, picking up on those themes like Narnia, um, which is was written more for children and this wasn't. Um, but you still see those contrasts very clearly. You just have to wrestle with them more. Um, but even looking at the contrast, uh, and Lewis says it himself in that in that uh, intro there, the dark idolatry and pale enlightenment at war with each other and with vision, with being able to see, right? And you, so you see that contrast um, there of whether it's beauty versus ugliness, such a huge theme in this story of you have just like the, the overwhelming beauty of psyche um, and then just this dark ugliness of Oriwell, but then you see it in the religion as well. And uh, you have the Fox who is like the Greek enlightenment world thinking. Um, and even like the beauty of the statue that he brings in that represents the gods there versus like just this ugliness of the stone and the blood sacrifice of uh, the beauty of the mountain versus the ugliness of the wasteland. So you're just seeing these contrasts. And then she, here she stands as the one who has to figure out what is true here. And that's like her wrestling 
what is true here? And she's the ugly one. And, you know, what do you make of that? You know, we could speak into that. Um, why that's not in the original myth, right? Why does Lewis choose to have her so ugly and then taking on the veil in that? So, yeah, what, like, what contrasts did you see in there that like, stood out to you um, that you thought were important? Um, I saw some contrast with, of course, the ugly and the beauty and the, the faces veiled and unveiled and weakness and strength or truth versus lies, suffering, jealousy. There's just, there's so much in it. It goes so deep. It's really almost, it's hard to express. There were um, contrasts between the care that the, the, the three girls were given as they were growing up in this palace. Um, the care offered to them by the fox, their tutor, versus Bata, the nursemaid character, who was horrible. Um, you also saw the, the difference in leadership between the king, Oriwell's father, how he led the country and what kind of a person he was, versus the ruler that came after him. Again, don't want to give too much away right now, but um, contrast in leadership, contrast in in love, and, you know, love that is sacrificial and and nurturing versus love that is possessive and devouring. So you mentioned the fox, and because this is we're talking about classical education here, in many ways, the fox, their teacher, their tutor, their instructor um, for these sisters during their growing up years. He is the voice of reason and you might say the face of Greek education and culture. So that's one face that you have here. Um, and because we're classical educators who we are actually educating our children in a lot of Greek philosophy and thinking and myths. And on a daily basis, we are teaching our own children and students a lot of this thinking. So what do you take away from Lewis's contrast between Greek philosophy and the more primitive and raw, dark, blood-soaked spirituality of Ungut? And you really see that on the mountain when Oriwell herself is torn between what she saw, right? Like what is, what is the voice of reason versus what you might say is just the supernatural, unexplainable, mysterious. Well, I, I thought it was interesting that he made the fox such a good person. Um, as I was reading, I loved his, I loved the fox's relationship with uh, the girls because he was really the only person who was nurturing to them um, who, who when they were young really loved them. And even though he was a slave and later when she offers to give him his freedom, he stays um, because of their relationship. And I love that because um as James Taylor, Dr. James Taylor said one time, and I've never forgotten it, that education is a way of love. And that was so evident. And yet, and yet it wasn't enough. Um, 
it it wasn't until she encountered um, what the priest of Anket was able to lead her to the more spiritual. She wasn't able to see the spiritual truths under the fox's tutelage. Um, and so when she goes to the river, she's not able to see the palace. She doesn't have the faith to see it. And it's not until the end that she has eyes to see the spiritual realities. But she glimpses it for a second, you know, and maybe that's my question. Like, what is more real? And I've, I've, I've had to wrestle with this with classical education, which that's why I think it matters that we say it's a Christian classical education, because that's actually just different from classical education. Like, what is more real? Like, the Greek philosophy would say, no, this is what's real. Here is the world. This is how it works. Um, the fox saying, oh, it really was just um, like bandits or something. Like there's a, there's a scientific explanation. There's a real world explanation to everything. That's real. And then you have, I mean, you have the fox and, the, and Bardia who are the, the opposite faces of each other, right? Um, who's like, no, this supernatural explanation is real. And as moms who are educating our children in, um, in the continuation of, let's say like a mythical world story, I hope, how do you, how do you teach them? What is more, what is more real? How do you communicate to them? Like, I, I think real? that when, you know, the Greeks talked about truth, beauty, and goodness, and that you know, those are three key words that we use in classical education, right? But they're not an end in themselves. Um, we need to be leading ourselves, our souls, and our children's souls to understand that truth, goodness, and beauty are embodied in Christ. And so that as they feed on truth, goodness, and beauty, they're feeding on him and becoming um, beautiful themselves. So that yeah. kind of blends the spiritual world with the Greek philosophy world. Yeah, what did you see in that, Renee, of Oriol's struggle with what's real? Well, and she, she had, in, in the sense, she had the best of both worlds and two different kinds of education because she had the fox. So all of the rational all of the um, the head knowledge, you know, what is real. The, um, and, and he reminded me very much of, you know, in Plato's Republic, where Plato's like, oh, the poets are all liars. We don't need, we don't need, we don't need poets. And of course, you know, teachers who love literature were like, no, no, yes, we need poetry. We need that, that poetic knowledge. We need that insight into the, the transcendent that poetry offers us. But, but the fox gave her all of the rational knowledge. And then Bardia gave her, you might say, physical education, how to be strong, how to fight, how to use a sword, how to conduct herself, how to, you know, how to, how to defend herself, how to attack. So, you know, he's kind of got that, if you're going back to the Republic, he's, he's got that guardian aspect covered. So, you know, in the Republic, Plato says there's three classes of people. There's, there's the merchants, there's the guardians, and then there's the, the philosophers, basically. And so she kind of had the guardian covered and she had the philosopher covered between the fox and between Bardia. But neither of those, and even those together, 
were not enough to help her see what was transcendent, what was supernatural, what was, what was needful in her life. So yeah, classical education in the secular sense is, is good, but it's not going to get you to God. It's not going to get you that far. There has to be some kind of, um, you know, we would say, well, as, as Christians, God steps into our world and reaches us and comes to us. And, and that's what's going to have to happen because we can't get to him on our own. And, and so the book is about Oriole's journey of, of discovery of what is her place. Um, is, is it enough to know how to fight and defend herself? Is it enough to understand rational thinking? Is that going to get her where she needs to be? Yeah. And as we wrap up and we're going to jump in next time with some, um, maybe some deeper uh, questions of um, what is the journey of love in this and um, the idea of, of will's veil versus being unveiled but it's exactly what you said Renee in that um, God comes to us which is what's going to happen to Oriwell and that will be her in many ways her undoing but her final unveiling so we will jump in next time with those questions but until then here's to home Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.